very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Frances shares her fascinating career path, including long ago stints at a violin dealer and even a Bollywood streaming site, and explains how and why her itch to build things helped her make the pivot from senior UX roles into retraining as a software engineer. She talks of her love of code, the dangers of organizations treating UX as a separate silo, and the importance of entire product teams normalizing interaction with their users throughout the design and development process. We also ponder on the frustrating lack of diversity in the tech world and the risk of unconscious bias potentially creeping into product design as a result. Finally, she plays my three-card challenge to share her favorite UX tool, favorite technique, and a trend she hopes to see in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest this time is Francis Maxwell, and Francis styles herself as a human-centered software engineer, uh, which I'm really keen to hear more about uh, in a minute. We had the great pleasure of working together a few years back as an agency, along with actually Robin, who was um, uh, my first guest in the series. But it's great to have you on the show, Francis, and look forward to our chat. So great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. So nice to see you again after all these years. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's kick off. Tell me a little bit about your role, uh, Francis, and kind of the organization you work for. Yeah, sure. I'm a software engineer. I work at Skyscanner, uh, quite a well-known name in travel search, um, particularly for flight search, but we also do hotels and car hire. Um, I've been there about three and a half years. I've moved around the business. I've worked on various aspects like experimentation um, through to parts of the public facing website. And um, most recently I'm working in kind of internal tools. So I've got that kind of captive audience um, working on like organizational information and access to that. Uh, And most recently helping the sort of return of employees back to the office. So we've been building like desk booking tools and office administration tools for people to manage kind of workspaces. Right. And how are the digital teams kind of structured in, in Skyscanner? How, how many of you are there in a team and what's the kind of skill set? That's a great question. Um, and one that has varied so much in my years in digital. Um, Skyscanner, um, like some other companies I've come across in my career, is very engineering led. Um, and so the teams are very engineering heavy. My team, for example, it was eight engineers. I think we're six engineers now, but that's it. No other discipline. We don't have a product owner a designer, a researcher, anything like that. Um, There are, but that is partly because we're an internal team. So we're sort of a little bit less well-resourced. The external facing teams, they are more likely to have a product manager, a designer. Access to user researchers is quite limited. Um, I would say this, my guess is that there are fewer than 10 and that's in a company of 1200 people. So yeah, user researchers are very um, rare resource at Skyscanner. Right, right. And um, what? who are your user groups and what kinds of things are you working on day to day? Yeah, so 
obviously I've moved from um, external to internal facing. So now my I've got a captive audience of our employees. I work in the employee enablement tribe. I actually really love that. And I, or I always have, even when I was a, a UX person, um, because you it's easy to do research with people because they're right there and you can just ask them. <laughs> and then also like when you release products, it's easy to see the impact and to get sort of ongoing feedback about how your products are going. So um, yeah, those are my, that's my user base now. Interesting. And you, and you talked just then about for a former life as a UXer and I touched on that at the beginning. I'm, I'm fascinated to, to kind of hit, delve into that a little bit more and can you just kind of take me back how did you get into digital and kind of how once you were within digital what path you followed to get to to where you are now yeah sure um <clears throat> so I've had a lifelong interest in technology um I've always loved flashing and blinking lights like my dad was like a tech entrepreneur like he passed away like super young like in the early 90s but at that time he was working on antivirus software voice recognition systems so he was like way ahead of his time and me as like a young girl was like really good like ms dos commands and like dos spreadsheets and all the rest of that so i ended up doing a computer science and electronic music degree uh because i love music too um and actually that kind of killed my love for computer science and i was like i am never gonna work in this it is so dry and boring like i'm sorry to say but that's just what academic study of the subject did for me uh, and while I was there I, I fell in love with classical music and I worked in that for many years I worked for five years at this prestigious violin dealer uh, but I was doing like techie stuff on the side I was building websites for people I was doing their database implementations I built them an e-commerce website while I was there as well uh, and then I think I hit the grand age of 26 and I was like I need to get a career I can't stay in the violin shop <laughs> for the rest of my life even though it is wonderful here um, and so I landed a job as a developer at a startup doing um, Bollywood TV streaming. No way. Um, again, we were way ahead of our time, like offering a subscription model at a time where people weren't really ready for that. And neither were people's sort of broadband uh, infrastructure, basically. Um, but I was hand coding in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL in Notepad, and then just FTPing files up to a server. So it's like a really wow. basic deployment. <laughs> no, no, yeah, it was a very no frills approach to development. It was crazy. <clears throat> it was it was there that I really um, got my bug for like UX um, because I'd be handed designs like, uh, uh, you know, for example, I was asked to build an electronic programs guide for a live TV channel we were building you know like when you press guide on your remote and yeah. it comes up with all the channels and what's happening at what time it's quite a sophisticated thing to build as a developer um and i was given no direction in terms of like well what should the journey be like what happens when they when they click on this or how do they navigate to the next um time slot or whatever so i was having to figure this stuff out by myself um and i was like well how can i do this and i was like well, i'll read about it and so I started reading your ex-books. Um, I started with Steve Crook's um, Don't Make Me Think, classic there, Donald Norman's The Design of Everyday Things. And then from there, I was just like hooked. I was like, this is fascinating. I love this. This is the career that I want to have. And so the startup folded. Our dreams of being millionaires uh, wasn't realized. <laughs> um, I know I went, I went three months with no salary, which is really tough in your 20s in London. Uh, and so oh, I took the first no. job that I could, anything, uh, and I got a job pretty much as an editorial lead at the home office. So working across the home office uh, suite of websites, um, managing about 50 devolved editors um, to 
write for the web, learn how to write plain English and consider your audience in your communications, things like that. The Home Office was very hot on usability and accessibility. Um, and so that really sort of furthered my knowledge and interest in that. Then I got another job a little bit more close to users um, as a product manager in a magazine publisher. That's where I, I learned about Agile. I became a certified product owner. Um, again, another revelation of like, oh, right. Like, so all these times when I've tried to predict everything up front and then always forgot about stuff, that's just the way that life works. And this process sort of accommodates that. So I just thought that was wonderful. And then eventually, bingo, I managed to get a job as a UX consultant in Reading at the digital agency where I met you. Uh, and then that was the beginning of like a 10 year career in UX and service design. Um, and during that time, obviously, like you do a lot of user research, you see a lot of problems, a lot of unsolved pain points. Um, I took um, the time, you know, where these things weren't being solved in my day job um, to write down in an app, like ideas I had to solve some of these problems. Uh, and eventually I just had such an itch to build things myself that I was like, well, I'm just going to start programming again. I, I knew I could, you know, I, I had my computer science degree. I had done this stuff before I started as a developer. Um, but, you know, the world had moved on so much. You know, the development process I described, that's not how things are done now, like <laughs> not by a long shot. So I was like, I'm going to have to um, reskill um, myself in this. And so I found I researched different boot camps. I chose Makers Academy in London, um, which was offering a remote option at the time because I was up in Glasgow. I still am. Um, and I saved for 18 months to do this boot camp because it's quite expensive to take four months off work um, and to pay the course fees and everything. But it was totally worth it. I absolutely loved it. I just enjoyed programming so much. I just I get that kind of flashing and blinking lights element from looking at my code, looking at the terminal running my tests and stuff I just feel like a hacker I really, I really enjoy the process of it um which is something I I had never felt before like especially not at, at university um and it's interesting because when I was at school like and you do these sort of careers questionnaires about like what would suit you and the thing that came out top for me was applications developer and I just ignored it but that's it interesting out, yeah it turns out they were right I I'm born to do this kind of work I love it I love the problem solving aspect of it and so although I did that boot camp to eventually build my own tech products and be an entrepreneur, and I still kind of have that dream in a way, uh, not to be a billionaire, but just to um, have passive income, a sort of income replacement. So you then have more choice over how you spend your time. That's uh, one of my goals. Um, although that was my goal, I've actually just enjoyed it so much that that's when I decided to just take uh, the plunge and go into it full time. So 18 months after I finished the boot camp, so quite a big gap really plenty of time to forget your skills <laughs> I, I saw an advert that Skyscanner were looking for engineers uh, and I was always very impressed with Skyscanner I'd seen them on the conference circuit I'd been to events at the offices and the offices are amazing and so I just threw my hat in the ring and they were like uh, I said would you consider a junior candidate and they were like well we're not really looking but you know we'll have a chat and then um, somehow I ended up on the graduate program at the age of like 38. It's quite amusing because I was like the age of some of the other grads, like parents. <laughs> 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 you know what, though? I can drink them under the table. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Probably not anymore, but at the time uh, and afford the rounds as well. Um, yeah, no, so I joined the graduate program at the Skyscanner. Um, really enjoyed it. I've been there ever since. I've been promoted. So now I'm software engineer too. Um, Loving the job. I have started building some products on the side, um, 
but I'm not in any rush in terms of monetizing them or anything like that. It's more of a learning experience and sort of consolidating my engineering skills. So I know it's a very long answer to your question, but it's quite a lengthy career to go through. No, that's fascinating. And what, what twists and turns? You've got content design in there somewhere as well as UX and, and development. I'm interested to know kind of how um, the your time spent in the UX world has kind of complemented and helped you in terms of going back into development and being a developer. Oh, how helps. kind of complementary those skills yeah, are. It, it helps enormously. I, I sort of feel like I, at one point I've had like every job on the scrum team, right? So I've got high empathy for other members of the team, especially if they're in other disciplines. Um, and I'm, I'm always um, asking difficult questions about like, why are we doing something? What problem does it solve? How much do we know about this? Like what assumptions are we making and how sure are we about these? Um, and these have led to good outcomes very often are often an improved product or a decision not to do something entirely um, and that's very important in my team where we are only engineers um, and so I think I've played a, a really good role in upskilling other people in that kind of thinking thinking more in the problem space not just on your tool mm-hmm. definitely definitely so how would you uh, say that then product teams can ensure that they they're all they always have their users in mind kind of when they're working on digital services and products i think the key learning um i experienced through doing it the wrong way for a long time <laughs> is not to make ux into a silo um where a specialist person goes off and does everything and then comes back with what steve cook calls the big honking report right that just isn't very um I don't know it's not that motivating to read a report is it even if it's got prioritized actions in it um what is more motivating is when you see user pain for yourself um and there's no substitute for that really and so what I learned um in my UX career was just to always bring people on the journey with me and to get them at minimum observing users and observing user research um, and at best facilitating it themselves even at the cost of like perfect methodology, I would rather someone, a developer, do an interview, accidentally ask a few leading questions. Like, it's okay, it happens, like, we all do it. Um, and just build that, um, build it into the process where you're always interacting with users and you're not afraid of it. And it's actually something that just becomes normalized. And it's not like a big project that's costly and time consuming, but it's just something you do as part of your regular heartbeat in your process. Um, there's always this conception I find like, oh, we haven't got time for user research, like, like it's this big deal and it really doesn't need to be. You can do it in such a lightweight way and you can change up your techniques. My team has been amazed at all the different ways in which you can do user research and the different levels of fidelity of prototyping that you might have. That's that's brilliant. I mean, I've always been an advocate, exactly like you say, of, of bringing the team with you and, and stakeholders and the clients on the process and getting them to observe mm-hmm. research. But to actually do it, that's a step beyond. I think that's really... How did they find that? Were they were they kind of re- reluctant to it or were they happy to roll their sleeves yeah. off and kind of dive in? Did you have <laughs> yeah, to cajole terrified. Them? Terrified. There's a lot of cajoling and a lot of like, I will do the first session and you can watch. Well, so we, what we did is we set it up so that like, I would do the first session and people would watch. Um, and someone would take notes and then the note taker would do the next session someone else would take notes and then that note taker would do the next session and take oh, notes. so it, yeah. it, 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 you would always have some exposure to note taking before you started it first and I would always like 
like uh, you would in an agency, I'd always um, collaborate on a very detailed discussion guide ahead of the session so that everything was pretty much scripted. It was always the same. You just have to go through it, not too much thinking on your feet. And that took away quite a bit of fear, I think, because you were just following a process that you, it's written down, you've observed it, you've taken notes on it. It gives you that confidence to give it a go. And also we have this kind of culture of like, it's all right if you mess up, like, don't worry if you you ask the wrong thing or you forget this or you said the wrong thing here. Like it happens. Even professionals do it. Like um, totally, just totally. go for it. Yeah. And the user's not going to know half the time one way or the other. It's it's uh, it's only kind of if you're in the game you 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 know. Um. So yeah. th- that that testing was that kind of moderated lab based testing, and there were observers in another room. Is it the kind of traditional way, or how, how did you do that? Yeah. So it's all remote now, isn't it? So everything we yeah. do is remote via Zoom. We're not using any particularly fancy tools um recruiting for us is a breeze because we just do it on slack um so yeah we would just set up uh, we'd invite people um via a slack thing or we'd ask people that we knew that fit the kind of demographics that we were looking for um, and then just set up zoom sessions with them just put them in people's calendars right right here's a question what does user-centered design mean to you um it just means involving users at every stage of the process and not just for validating your idea or your assumptions, but being really open to what you observe um, and being so open, in fact, that you might throw your ideas and assumptions away <laughs> and just really see like what is happening and what is the pain and not try to take everything sort of literally what a user is saying about what they want, but sort of seeing what's behind what they're saying, if you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's throughout the process, really. You can use it in a formative way to, to generate ideas from, from observing those pain points, or you can use it to evaluate solutions. Either way, just always be involving users, and that's user-centered design, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Here, here, I second that. You touched on this a little bit before, but in terms of kind of COVID-19, the pandemic uh, and the way of working uh, both within the team and kind of how you deal with um, uh, external users, kind of how's that affected things or how have you, obviously everything is remote now, kind of how's that affected you and your day-to-day work and work with the team? It's actually been a great advantage um, because our team, all of the teams I've worked in in Skyscanner have been across multiple locations. Um and so it meant that whoever was in the other office had a lesser experience, essentially. Uh, and that ranges from any kind of technical collaboration through to your experience of line management. And now, because everything is done remotely, it's just democratized the experience. Like everything is equal for everybody. Your access to your line manager is the same as anybody. The way we collaborate is the same. Like it's actually marvelous. Uh, I miss the office greatly from a personal well-being point of view in terms of having separation from between work and home. I, suffer, I struggle with that a little bit. I used to enjoy the walk to work and back every day. I get a bit of exercise from that. Skyscanners' offices are also absolutely beautiful, like, wonderful places. Like Literally, we, we have a hammock, a meditation room, massage chairs, ping pong no. rooms. Like it's like everything you've like. We've got like hot chocolate on tap, like all the snacks and drinks you can imagine. Like and it, everyone's really nice, and we all go for lunch together. And like, I really miss that social aspect of the office. But from a collaboration point of view, it's been better um, being remote. That's really interesting, isn't it? And um, in terms of 
you talked about bringing the team with you and get them to do research. When it comes to sharing your insights, not just with the immediate team, but kind of perhaps with more senior stakeholders in the organization, how have you done that and kind of how often and where and what format have you used? Um, so we have tribe show and tells every Friday morning. Um, we use Miro for um, collating our research insights. Um, so I, I usually create a very structured board before we start any kind of user research so that people can plonk their post-it notes into the right areas. And then when we're done with the sessions, we'll all mob on it together. You know, all the cursors flying about in Miro, how yeah, wonderful that yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like group and theme everything. Um, and then we normally have a volunteer um, a present at the show and tell. And we'll show people the board and we'll, we'll walk through our findings and um, just encourage other people in the tribe to take up user-centered design and think about personas and think about involving people and testing their ideas and stuff. And I've seen it happen. I've seen then other squads start using some of these techniques in, uh, and talking about them in their show and tells. And it just really warms the cockles of my heart to see that. Yeah, it's funny you talk about the cursors flying around. I remember in the early days of the pandemic when we were just getting to grips with Miro, I did a, a I filmed a, did a, sc- a screen grab of um, a few seconds of that going on and showed it to some senior civil servants who weren't yet familiar with Miro, and it kind of blew their minds. Like, oh wow, all these people are collaborating in real time online. I was like, yeah, that's it's the incredible. Way we're moving. I just think uh, it, it's so um, you know it's not good for a pandemic to happen at any time of your life, but if it was going to happen. You know, now is the right time when we've got the broadband infrastructure, yeah. we've got the tools. Like if it had been 10 years ago, wow, things would have ground to a halt. I know, I know. It's it's really sobering, isn't it? And it's still not been easy, even with kind of high-speed no. broadband and, and all the tools we've got at our fingertips. Yeah. But um, what, if you're, I know you've done recruiting in the past, um, a fair amount of it. What kinds of skills do you look for when you're bringing um, people into to, to digital teams? I mean, whether it be obviously their requirements are slightly different depending on the role they're coming in for. But generally, what kinds of people do you think thrive in, in the kind of environments that you and I work in? Yeah, it's a great question. I've not hired for a while now. Um, but my tap changed on that, I think, during the time that I was doing it. I used to look for people who kind of, um could demonstrate the kind of skills I was looking for and would sort of um give me the kind of things I was looking to hear I think they call it fishing right Uh, now I realize it is it's kind of the wrong thing to do right because everyone comes with a different background and and, um different ways of, of approaching things and that's totally valid and actually great from a sort of diversity point of view and so now what I look for is um their potential and their motivation and their willingness to learn. And if I can see examples of that and they seem like someone that would be a good cultural fit, that would get on with people, um, that's that's more important to me, I would say. It, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You say fishing. I suppose it's one of those biases, isn't it? It's almost like a confirmation bias. You're looking to tick a box that says, in my mind, I'm looking for the person who does or says this. Yeah, um, and I, yeah. I genuinely know I was looking for somebody like me, and that's just that's such a mistake. <laughs> Not that I'm a mistake to hire, but you want like diversity in your team, not just people who think like you've had your experience and that you're asking the impossible anyway. Like, you know, I feel bad for like some of the interviews I've done in the past. And on that note, actually, the subject of kind of diversity, obviously, this is something that's ongoing in the tech world in terms of um, you know, ethnic mix, gender mix, ages, all of that. What's your kind of view on that and what you've experienced over the various organizations you've been in? How, how diverse is tech, I suppose? <laughs> nowhere near diverse enough it's heavily indexed towards young white straight males isn't it um 
and you see the way that that manifests in the products that come out you know like forgetting about menstruation with like apple health and um there's like various examples of, of that that come out all the time um and i'm glad that now diversity inclusion is on the agenda and that businesses can see that it actually gives competitive advantage to them it's not just like a moral obligation but it's a really good idea to do it um I just think you know there's one thing about like making public statements about how much you care about it and there's another one about well what are you actually doing to address this and are you listening to the people in your organization who are more diverse do you know who they are like what are their viewpoints to the people that have left are you listening to why they've left um so yeah I'd like to see more empathy more action and less chat if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do, do you think though things are moving in the right direction if i can put it like that or yes it... but just slowly but right. you know we're talking about centuries millennia of like societal you know being a patriarchy like it's going to take not more just that point of diversity but all of them it, it's going to take time to equalize um but we can only try i i think one of the major uh barriers i think is um uh, people not realizing their own biases, uh, especially nice people, because like you're a nice person, you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, I'm not ageist. Well, of course, you don't think you are consciously, but unconsciously, it's been built into you. Um, and the sooner you acknowledge that, the better. Uh, one thing that I found very enlightening was um, when I read Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, which is all about unconscious bias. Um, and he suggested doing the Harvard implicit association test. Um, and you have like two columns, like um, good and evil or something like that. And then you have like a, a list of things and you've got to quickly like sort them. And what you find is that you are actually horribly sexist and racist and all the rest of it, just implicitly. Um, and like, it's just a real eye opener for me, like doing that test. Uh, I realized it as well, like when I, I was getting a walkthrough, like a demo of this very geeky product. I can't remember what it did, but it was super technical. And the woman like um, walking me through it, I didn't realize to the end, but I had definitely made the assumption that she was some sales and marketing person. I didn't realize that she was like the tech co-founder of this product. And I just thought, that's horrific that me right. as a woman developer have that assumption so like if that's what I think that's what everybody thinks isn't mm-hmm. it that's what we're battling against so I mean like starting with yourself is a really good point yeah and I think with with the the rise of AI and machine learning and big data all of these and this is all you know discussed ad nauseum in the tech press isn't it that there's a real risk that some of these human biases are built into machines and that I mean there's that famous case isn't there of Amazon hiring they they used some AI tool in their recruitment, and it was it was filtering more male CVs than female CVs because it was using data from previous you know human centered exactly. recruitment. Yeah, absolutely. Like like you know, people who use this website to do coding on the side are more likely to be a successful candidate, that type of thing. But then that excludes people who have significant caring responsibilities that don't yep. have time for that. Tends to be women. Um, yeah, so you really have to be so careful. Yeah, I think AI ethics uh, is a huge field. Yeah, yeah, definitely. On a lighter note, UX. <laughs> if we go back to UX design, let's say, and I just to touch on the kind of recruitment piece, if what advice or tips would you give to someone, let's say, starting out in, in the world of user experience? They, they're kind of interested, they've heard about it, and they kind of want to know more and get into it. What, what would you tell someone? 
yeah I guess like learn about it in whatever way suits you like for me I got a lot of value out of reading those foundational books that even though they are quite old now like the design of everyday things was written in the 80s I think still super relevant um one of the things I love about UX is that the the rate of change is slower than it is in development and so things you know principles last for longer so you're always going to kind of find value in that stuff even if it's quite old um and then I guess you know try to get experience where you can um if you're not in a job yet and you want to show your skills like you know I know people talk about like doing stuff for free it's arguable whether or not that's ethically okay um but you could I've always liked the idea of say like writing a medium article of like reimagining the changing room experience because for me like buying clothes is like such a nightmare it's full of friction and emotion right but I've got money to spend on clothes and I want clothes but that problem is not well solved for me so I've always wanted to write this article about like how I saw it how you could change the journey to be more user-centered and I think it would be an interesting thing to put out there and people you you build a kind of brand for yourself through like publishing posts and stuff like that and you can do that without experience so I guess just delve, delve in, enjoy, feel free to make mistakes, do things wrong. That's often the only way that you can learn. Um, do user interviews on a product that you're interested in. Uh, there's lots of avenues to take there. Mm-hmm. Network. Yeah, yeah. It's a field that lots of people want to get into, isn't it? So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I think UX is amazing. What do you love about what you do, Francis? Oh, I love everything about it. I really do. Um, I think there's such potential to have an impact on the world in a positive way. Um, that's the main thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, um, that I just know that in some small ways I'm contributing um, to making some people's lives easier. Uh, and I get a lot of joy out of that. But I also get a lot of joy out of just the sheer process of doing it. Like I really enjoy all of the aspects from the kind of research through to the sort of solutionizing and coming up with ideas and then even the implementation of it. I find it, I find development incredibly creative. Like there's so many ways that you can implement a solution. It looks beautiful. I just love the look of code. I think it's gorgeous. And it's so gratifying, like when it works. I felt like when I was a UX, I, I, I felt a degree of frustration sometimes that I'd often like present like well-evidenced designs and strategies and quite often like more often than I was happy about these things wouldn't see the light of day and like what's the point like if it doesn't make a difference in the world what was the point of doing it right but now I'm I'm a developer Uh, I I have the power like I'm in the code base and so my um what's what's the word you know like my time to impact has greatly Mm -hmm. shortened because I can go from having an idea to having implemented it way faster than I did when I was pure UX Mm, that's really interesting yeah yeah um and I was just thinking as you were talking you're always such a positive and upbeat and optimistic person it's one of the reasons (laughs) I enjoy working with you so much that's very much coming through and it's great to hear someone so passionate about what they do um where do you see your own career going in the next few years obviously it's kind of taken some very interesting turns on the way to where you are now longer term where, where do you see yourself yeah, so I can. I've got some short-term news in that I'm moving on from Skyscanner. Um, ah. So I'm a, I'm a I'm a full-stack engineer at Skyscanner, which means that you do everything uh, from front end to back end to infrastructure, um, which has been great for my learning. I couldn't have asked for a better place to start my engineering career. Um, but I'm moving to um, a fintech company called Clio. Uh, it's like an AI chatbot that monitors your spending and sort of uh, 
roasts you frankly in quite an irreverent <laughs> funny way like she swears at you she sends you gifts about like what the heck did you just spend the amazon hat look how much you spent amazon in the last six months um and i just think it's hilarious i just love the product i think it's great and i'm going there to become a front-end engineer which is great because that's front-end engineering fits more with my ux background and it gives me that chance to kind of specialize um and it's it's a react native mobile app as well and a lot of my ideas are for mobile apps so it just fits with my um the direction in which i want to go which is to develop my front end expertise and to continue on my kind of entrepreneurial path where i still intend to put products out there that hopefully eventually will give me a degree of passive income so I can then have that choice about how I want to spend my time. So I've got quite a clear vision about where I want to go and I, I'm doing quite well on that path. But I've got to say to anyone who's like, oh, I don't know what my vision is or what my path is. Like I didn't get there until I was 36, like when I read a book called Entrepreneur Revolution. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I want. And then it, everything sort of fell into place after that. Um, so don't worry, like if you, you're not quite as sure what you want to do, feel free to meander around and have every job on the scrum team before you figure it out. <laughs> it's mm. fine. It all, it all helps. All of the jobs I've done have helped me. It does. Yeah. Someone, I remember reading once someone said most careers are lived forward and understood backwards. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Kind of, you make decisions sort of half in chance at the time and it's only in retrospect. You're like, oh, okay, that's why I did that. Um, very true. Yeah. A friend once said as well, he's like, you know, when it comes to major decision points in your life, like do what gives you the best stories. And I think that's quite an interesting way to think about things as well. That's very true. That's very true. Brilliant. Last thing then, uh, the three car challenge. So I've got here a tool, a trend and a technique. And one is a diamond, one is a, a club and one is a heart. I want you just to choose one. Uh, one. I'll Which go for the want? heart. Okay. So the heart is a tool so okay. choose your favorite tool maybe ux tool it may, may not be given your what you do at the moment but kind of what 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 is your go-to tool of choice when you're doing a day's work and why um <laughs> uh, in all honesty it's vs code which is my code editor which right. i really enjoy because it's very extendable and it's very beautiful i just love all the colors um uh for a tool that's more um likely to be used by UX people. I would say Miro is incredible. So, so um, impressive and so functional and mostly joyful to use. <laughs> you get these times when you accidentally move stuff and it can be frustrating, but um, they do let you lock it. But yeah, I love Miro, so I think that's fantastic. There's so many good tools, it's hard to choose, isn't there, it? There are, it's, yeah, it's absolutely true. And it's funny because Miro's come through so often in this series, everyone says Miro, but I'm, in, I'm intrigued that there's there's Mural, there's there's Figma Jam, there's all sorts of other things which do similar stuff, and yet Miro still seems to be everyone's go-to tool. Yeah, and They just seem to have nailed the experience in a way that perhaps the others haven't quite. Yeah, I've not used the others, yeah. But because Miro uh, works for me so well, I, I, don't, I don't feel incentivized to try the others, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Next okay, I'm going to go for the diamond. Okie dokie. That is a trend. <laughs> Maybe uh, a broad trend you see in digital in general or, or something specific in the world what, you're in. How about a trend that I would like to see? Yeah, fine. I, I would like to see user-centered design being championed at an executive level as standard. I would like to see it at the C-suite level, so either in the form of like a chief customer officer or chief experience officer, someone there who is understanding the importance of user research um, and willing to challenge the foundations of what the company is built on based on what, what you see there. Um, 
I really hope to see that. I, I think that's what's needed. I think a lot of the issues with UX um, uh, aren't around the process and the ideas that come from it. It's not around the talent that you have. Often people, uh, organizations have great UX talent, but they just don't have the leverage within the organization to see that change through. And it's an organizational design issue. And so, yeah, UX being more embedded into organizational design and championed at the very highest level is the trend that I would love to see. We need more CXOs, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. It's starting to happen, but not quickly enough. Not quickly enough. Maybe one day we'll see you on the front page of Wired, on the front cover. <laughs> CXO. Of... Yeah, you never know. <laughs> I look forward to that. I look forward to it. We'll get you back on the show then. <laughs> sure. And the last one is a technique. What's your... Okay, let's keep it to UX for now. But what, yeah. what... UX technique, what's your favorite one? Amongst many. Is it, is it okay to say two? Right, so my go-to gold standard technique is going to have to be um, like one-to-one -one qualitative user testing with a depth interview, right? Because you can do so much. It's very efficient. You can fit a lot into a small block of time. So if you're limited in time and resource, there's tons you can do with that, right? So if you're going to do nothing else, do that, I would say. Um, but the technique that I want to promote, because I think not enough people know about it, is one called Top Tasks, um, which was invented by Jerry McGovern. And it's where you, along with stakeholders, you um, list out all the possible things that a user might do on your website or your app. And you 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 whittle it down. So I've done this before, right? And I came up with fifteen hundred tasks, and I like that's too, that's too wow. many, right? You whittle it down to like say eighty to hundred per user group, and then you send a survey to that user group, and it's got to be the right demographics, and it's got to be statistically significant. So you need at least four hundred people, roughly, right, in each right. group, and you give them like one question, which is, what are your top five tasks um, out of this list, right? And they've got a hundred to look through and they've got to check five. And like, you're like, oh my goodness, you can't design a survey like that with a hundred answers. That's ridiculous, right? But I've seen this in practice. I've done it twice um, and it is totally possible. What people do is they scan up and down the list real quick. And it's amazing how quickly people are able to make decisions on what, what their top five is. And when you get that uh, a level of statistical significance, um, the, the findings are, are really, really interesting, especially looking at how they differ per uh, user group, if you like. And you can use that then to um, inform any sort of regular testing that you do, any sort of competitive benchmarking. They're essentially like your red routes. Like this is, these are the tasks that matter the most and that you want to make sure are fully optimized before you start adding on extra stuff, essentially. I really think it's a great technique. It's very simple, doesn't take long, tells you a lot. And I think more people should use it. That's amazing. I've not heard of that. So you have a long list of, say, 100 tasks and people have got to scan through them and choose their top five. Yeah. Wow. So easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you need to make sure that the, the items on the list are sort of like organization agnostics. You're not using like terms that only mm, organization make, make sense. They need to be generic. But so there's a lot of like crafting around the wording of those tasks. That's where that's where the most time is taken. Um, but after that, yeah, it's marvelous. And how can they, how can you avoid them just, you know, presumably they're incentivized for taking part. Um, how do you avoid them just choosing anything just to get the test over with? Yeah, you're always going to um, worry about that, I guess. But as long as your survey is pretty much just that and not too much else, then, you know, if they can see that that's the only one, like one out of three questions maybe that they have to right. answer, uh, then you're less likely to suffer from that. And if you've got enough people as well, um, you're going to like whittle out the few that behave like that.
hopefully yeah it's a good question and i think like bad survey design is like a big issue in research um and then one that ux professionals <laughs> talk about a lot i guess i think the problem with it is that like surveys were the only research technique that anyone was taught at, at school and that it just remains with you for your careers so you're like oh just stick in a survey but this is the one time where i actually i love a survey for this yeah it's interesting and the science of survey design and the amount of conference talks that go on and books that exist around how to design a survey you're absolutely right but yeah. uh, no I, i'm gonna try that I, right thank you for that i'm gonna take that myself and give it a go because i like that give it a go. oh it's great I, I really it's great also it's a really interesting exercise just from a stakeholder communications point of view so sort of talking about how many things your website your software does and like actually should we be doing so much Brilliant. That's everything I wanted to cover with you, Francis. So there's, uh, that's been absolutely fascinating. As always, to chat with you, uh, I've learned a lot and, um, and I'm sure those <laughs> listening will have done as well. Do you have any other kind of burning uh, thoughts or comments based on what we've chatted about before we wrap up? No, I think you've got it all out of me. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for taking part and uh, all the very best in your next move and in the future. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line directly via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. Join me again next time and I'll be talking to Ben Watson, a freelance interaction designer. We'll chat about his varied experiences working with large teams on government digital transformation projects here in the UK. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centred.